special Fraudish episode because the tables are turned on me. We have a guest host, Jen Hoare. You may have heard her on the podcast recently. She asked to help out on the show, and of course, I jumped at the chance. You get to hear her human skills in full action regarding me. Yikes. Again, podcasts have changed my life, and I really hope they are beneficial to all those listening out there. I listened to a recent podcast, and the introduction was much longer than I normally do. It made me think, should I make longer introductions? I just don't know. I like to hop right into things, but I would appreciate your thoughts. I'm also considering doing little real-life fraud breakdowns, kind of like breaking pink-collar crime stories. Any interest? please reach out and let me know or send me some stories that you would like broken down. Now, let's get started listening to Jen and her craft. Hello, Kelly Paxton, normal host of Fraudish, formerly known as Great Women in Fraud. It is an honor to be interviewing you today. Thank you for giving me your normal seat. I'm a little bit nervous. Good. <laughs> Nothing to be afraid of. We're both very uh, enthusiastic conversationalists. And so we're just going to continue our conversation from when you interviewed me. Um, well, first of all, congratulations on the rebranding of this podcast. I think it's gotten a lot of great attention. You have a, a lot of wonderful guests. Um, and now uh, the tables will be turned on you but you have a lot of insight to share with your audience that maybe has only come out in a little bit, a little bit here, a little bit there. Now we're going to harvest all of your knowledge in the next 35 to 40 minutes. So I wanted to start by asking you, what was the inspiration behind the rebranding of this show? Um, you know, I get a lot of people who reach out to me and say they love the podcast, but I was sensing that because it was great women in fraud, I was limiting my audience. And the whole point of my work is to spread the idea that fraud can happen to anyone. So um, I just wanted to reach out to a bigger audience. And unfortunately, I think the great women in fraud was a little bit self-selecting and the idea is to get it to everyone. So um I just, uh, I had interviewed the host of Murderish and, um, I, you know, I think I've told you before, podcasts have changed my life. I love podcasts. And when I find out that someone doesn't like podcasts, I look at them like, what, what what's wrong with you? <laughs> so, yeah, I don't understand either. And I know you do a lot of walking and your podcasts are your walking companions. Um, it's a great way to consume a lot of information and and get ideas um which brings me to ask you what was your initial idea and impetus for starting your own podcast i went to the national speakers association a couple of years ago and they had some sections on podcasts and at that point i'd been listening to a podcast and i came back all excited to do a podcast and my virtual assistant was like kelly you need to actually earn money to be able to pay me and you're not going to earn money from this. And I was, and then she did a list of everything I had to do to put together podcasts and it was overwhelming. And so I'm like, okay, fine. But I still had it in the back of my head. And then I was on great women in compliance. COVID was happening. This was, I believe June of 2020. And I said, screw it. 
I'm doing a podcast and I'm doing great women in fraud. And my VA has since moved on, but um, I still communicate with her. And uh, I love the podcast. I just, I, I can't believe what we can learn from so many different people. I just truly can't believe it. Right. I mean, you're preaching to the converted. Other than reading, my favorite way to learn is from other people. It's extremely customized. It contributes to a public dialogue. It gives us all ideas for other things, such as this very conversation. Um, I would love for you to reflect back on these couple of years that you've been doing this show. And if you could think of one time that you were really surprised or stumped by something you heard or handling a guest and how did you deal with it? Ooh, um, you know, I do like the lightning round <laughs> and um, some of the answers have been a little bit surprising one in particular, and I'm not going to call the person out. I that's was fine. Like, Keep it anonymous. Yeah. I was like, Oh, that's a little bit superficial. I was a little surprised given their background. Um, so I kind of was like, Oh, um, uh, and as far as stumped, um, not stumped, but I have had imposter syndrome with a couple of guests. Again, I'm not going to call them out. I think people might know if they listen to it. Um, <laughs> I was shocked that they accepted and so honored like by the gift of time, it is time. Now we don't have to do it on video, so you don't have to get all ready for it, but time is something you can't buy more of. And um, so the fact that people that are um, real big deals have been on the podcast is an honor for me. Well, you afford people an opportunity to reflect on their own careers. And you're not only a good conversationalist, but, uh, and I've seen your bank of questions and they're, they're both, um, there's some levity to them, and but they also invite a lot of reflection. So that's an opportunity to almost do a practice job interview, um, if anyone is in that process, uh, to talk to you. I was wondering, as you look to the future of the show, uh, with with the sky being the limit, who would be your dream guest? Oh, why? Um, oh, I have a couple. Michael Lewis. Oh, yes. You mentioned him when we chatted. Yeah. Dan Ariely. Mm -hmm. um, Francesca Gino. Oh, yeah. Um, God, I have so many. So, so many. And maybe I'll get there. And um, I'm hearing some psychology, behavioral science trends there. Um, and I know that's that's a field you're very interested in. You talk about it on your website. Tell us a little bit more about how you cultivated your interest in that discipline. So for the people who don't know me very well, um, even though I feel I share a lot of information, uh, I started out in finance and then I went into becoming a special agent with U.S. Customs. And until I became a certified fraud examiner and worked at the sheriff's office, I had this view of bad people, bad guys. And then when I went to the sheriff's office and I see embezzlement on Main Street, I'm seeing regular looking people who have made very, very bad decisions. And um, I've also worked with people who are, quote, good people who would walk all over you, you know, after they've stabbed you in the back. And I just, 
how people make their decisions is fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Um, because so often it doesn't make sense in my world. Like I don't understand it. And I'm like, where did they get to that point? And has your immersion in some of this literature and podcasts of some of the guests you mentioned and others, has that helped to answer that for you? Um, I would say yes. Once in a while, I still get really, really surprised. Um, I think I have a very good gut instinct. Um, uh, I had an experience recently and I was asked to describe how I understood a sentence. And I said, I wouldn't have chosen those adjectives to describe it, but my adjectives would be just similar, just different ones. Mm -hmm. And um, they really pushed on it. And I was just like, everyone is different. Everyone has different viewpoints. So it means the same, but we described it differently, if that makes sense. Yeah. So bringing different interpretations to the same experience, um, which to me invites um, a discussion a little bit with you apropos of the renaming of your podcast um, to the gray areas that we encounter in our work. And that to me was the connotation or is the connotation of fraud-ish. And there are so many nebulous, ambiguous things that we have to deal with. And I wonder... I wonder what your thoughts are on how you wade through the gray areas of fraud. Uh, first off, I think everyone has a price. And I have a colleague that I used to work with quite a bit, and he said very strongly, I would never do that. And I said, you have a child. Hmm. So I don't believe it. I think everyone has a price. Um, some people's price is high. Some people's is low. Um, but eventually everyone has a price and, um, I think you need to know your price Wow! and know that it's unattainable and you'd never go there, hopefully. Right. But I'm not going to sit in judgment of someone whose price is less than me. I use an example of a woman who was 87 years old, who sold $27,000 because her husband had cancer. I'm not sitting in judgment of that. I refuse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I just wrote a chapter on empathy and investigations. I think it is the strongest skill we have. And you as a human expert, I, what do you think about empathy? Oh, critical. I mean, I, I'm very fond of this, this term that I've picked up recently. Um, maybe it's intuitive to most people, but perspective taking, um, both in it, you know, collegial interactions with clients, with sources, understanding the context in which somebody is sharing their view, uh, doing as much as you possibly can to understand their perspective. Um, th that term is is kind of obvious, but to me, it's it's just a little bit more sounds a little bit more technical than the the soft skill or characteristic of empathy, but absolutely essential. Um, and I'm seeing a lot more literature now about our management literature about how that is the pillar of good leadership and effective leadership. It's not Machiavellian uh, leadership. So I'll be curious to read that chapter 
Um, I want to go back to this kind of gray area, ambiguity area, uh, nature of fraud. Um, can you think of a time where you struggle to navigate through material data in an investigation you were doing to really pinpoint if a fraud was happening and if so, where it was coming from? So I worked a case for about three years and it was a nonprofit um, foundation and uh, I got brought in and the police had overreached, law enforcement had overreached. And it was because of the personalities involved. Um, it was a dysfunctional board, which a lot of people who do nonprofit work, you know, you have to deal with that. It was a dysfunctional board. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, um, if people could just sit and have a decent conversation with decent motives, we wouldn't get ourselves in near as much trouble as people do. So at the end of the case, um, what was interesting in this case, and the lawyers will never, ever agree, um, I did a lot of interviews and I told the lawyers they will never write her a check. They cannot in her mind, in their minds, write a check because they only had so much cash left. And it's a long convoluted story, but she had a life estate and she needed to be compensated. And um, I said, but they will give her something. And this goes to how people view money. Mm -hmm. So let's just say we asked for $10 in cash or in a check. No, no, no. Fighting, fighting, fighting. Lawyers, lawyers, lawyers. At the end of the three years, she ends up getting a hundred because they didn't write a check. They signed over a piece of property that they had no mental attachment to. Hmm. And that's where people look at money so differently. I was just on a call with a, a guy who's in the fraud space and he's more in fintech and, you know, e-commerce and stuff like that. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, it's always about the money. And so it didn't make any, any sense for, in this case, for them not to write her a check for $10 because they could have sold the piece of property for a hundred and then kept 90 and given her 10 and she would have been good. But mm. no, I mean, it's practically malpractice, really. But the lawyers in that case couldn't see it. And I was like, that's because you're not talking to the the parties involved and so important to get a sense of what is important to people. Right. And some people really hold tight to money. Some people really hold tight to a relationship. And when you can kind of see that, I think it makes the end easier, the end result easier. That's a great takeaway. And it's even more interesting to me because you developed that through all the conversations that you had. And Despite all of your uh, investigative prowess and tools and methods and no doubt uh, technological acumen that you've developed throughout your career, sometimes it really just comes down to what you were talking about, these conversations you're having with the various parties and their equities in a situation. You have a podcast. You've talked to a lot of people. What are your secret powers when it comes to, or, or even just basic skills that you can share with our audience about 
how to be this human intelligence master. Well, I don't know if it's a master, but you know what? I have a genuine curiosity. I, I just, I'm interested. I have a curiosity. I want to know what makes people tick. And I'm fascinated by like the fact that I grew up, my dad was a commodities trader. I thought I'd go into finance. I end up becoming a special agent. I had never touched a gun until I went to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. Um, and I look at the careers that we can have today and the people that get in the careers that we have. And I am fascinated by their um, sort of path to them because like I have young adult children and I have no idea what they will do because I mean, COVID is terrible. It has been terrible. But you and I are sitting here in our homes, in, you know, casual clothes, getting to have this conversation. Who would have ever seen that even 10 years ago? Right. I just, I think the technology and this pace of the world and like podcasts. I mean, I know we've talked about this before. I'm a huge Twitter fan. Like the resources that you could get that you could never get before due mm -hmm. to technology. I think we are living, and I know it's not the golden age, but like for me, it kind of is. I had an aunt who was, oh my God, she she was a spinster, never married, um, could have married apparently, but uh, she was such a researcher. She would go to the library and she died um, in about 2010, if she could have lived in the internet age, no one would have stopped her. Like she would get, right. she would get, she would ask me, Hey, can you go on that, that computer thing and kind of look this up? And one time <laughs> she gave me a present and she wanted to know the history of it. And so I, I looked it up and I told her the story and oh my God, she laughed so hard because the irony of the present was just too much for her. She's like, how'd you find that out so quickly? Like, I've been trying to find out that for so long. And I was like, well, there's a mark on the bottom of the candlestick. And I Googled it. And she was just, she would like call me up. Can, can you look, look me up something? So I just think we live in an amazing world. That's a great segue to something I was going to ask you anyway, which is that over the course of both of our careers, technology has changed so much. Um, but we also just reflected on the fact that at the end of the day, there's this very old fashioned method that still seems to work of talking to people. What has been when you look at the, the pace of change and the tools that we have our, at our disposal as investigators, what has been the most impactful for your work? You, you continue to talk to people. That's a that's a um, an arrow in your quiver. But what has been the biggest game changer? You obviously mentioned the Internet. Anything specific, a specific uh, capability, website, um, data set. Tell us about um, what you find really cool for your work. Well, my dad called Google the Ouija machine. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I, I'm going to say. Open source intelligence. I love LinkedIn. Love, love, love LinkedIn. Um, Twitter, I love. Uh, you know, the other thing I sort of love is surprising someone when you have a piece of information about them that you got online that they have no idea. <laughs> 
Yes. And I think you've done some stuff recently. Maybe you did a report about a CEO or some executive or something. And um, it was interesting. I was in a store recently and I, I, I saw a guy, a man, and I did a double take and I was like, who is that person? And he, he looked at me and, uh, and then I realized he was the CEO of a large corporation I used to work at. <laughs> and um, like the fact that like, I knew so much about him <laughs> and he knew nothing, even though we'd met, right. we had right. actually met a couple of times. Um, it's a little bit frightening if I were in a position like that, mm-hmm. I would be very careful. And then this, this goes to the whole family connection, you know, open source intelligence, your weakest leak is your family. Hmm. It is always, you've got a kid, you've got a nephew, you've got, you know, um, y- you can find someone online to get to that person. So you say weakest link in the sense of vulnerability um, about uh, regarding information about a family member. Yeah, it could be a, a, a some sort of, dare I say, pressure point um, or compromise. <laughs> well, and also just kind of you could use it to catch someone off guard. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to leverage information that way. Yes. As you know, in my work, um, the development of, of all information, good, bad and neutral, as I say, um, is to to develop a portrait of a person. It's not, it's not necessary. I mean, there can be leverage if there are negative um, pieces of information, red flags, et cetera. But the, the goal is to just really understand a person, a company, a market, an opportunity to inform decision-making and be as savvy and nuanced as possible. Um, you, you've really cleared up even in these couple of minutes some aspects of your work that a lot of people probably didn't realize. Um, what other misunderstandings do you think there are about our industry or your work specifically that you would like to debunk right now? Um, there is no CSI embezzlement. These cases take <laughs> so long. And a huge part of it is basically kind of, I say, being a fraud therapist, because I'm cheaper than their attorney, um, (laughs) and to tell them it's normal. Like, unfortunately, this is how the system is. Um, It's normal. Uh, Also explaining to people that, uh, you know, you aren't the only one who this has happened to by far and getting them to understand, like, I just tweeted a story the other day. Some woman stole from a business owner. The guy had come to this country. I think literally he said with like $5 in his pocket, built a big business. This woman stole millions of dollars from him. And he said, everything he has been through in his life, which clearly was difficult. He had left under terrible circumstances, come to the United States. Nothing has been so terrible as this theft from him. Nothing has been so terrible. And um, I have a client slash friend who she told me recently when she reached out to me and it was, I think, a Friday afternoon and I responded, she was on her way to check herself into a psych ward because no one would listen to her. 
everyone, no one would listen to her. Her own husband was like, no, no, this can't be like, um, that sort of, I don't want to say it's gaslighting, but, um, the victim shaming is huge. And I say, I don't victim shame except for Elizabeth Theranos. <laughs> investors, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, I want people to come forward because it's so important for other people to understand that it can happen. It can happen to the best, smartest business people out there. And yeah. Is there a case that you've, that you've done in whether in government or private sector that, that still bugs you either because you didn't resolve it or because there's some factor about it that, you think about how you did it, that that's just still in your craw. Um, there was a case I did. And I'll just say that um, they let him walk. The business didn't um, really hold him accountable. Mm-hmm. They let him resign. Anyone else lower in the food chain, they would have prosecuted what was the uh, general nature of the embezzlement? Embezzlement, okay. Large. Um, and it bothers me for a couple reasons, primarily that one. But uh, the person was so high up that I was too I was too low on the food chain to be the one to interview them, mm. and that bothered me because I think it put him in a bad position. It did put him in a bad position. Is there something you had in mind to ask him or a line of questioning that you thought really could have been a silver bullet to developing insight and intelligence that would have been formative and changing the outcome? No, I mean, the outcome, the outcome for the company was good because they got the money back, which was a shocker. Um, But I still think he should have been held accountable. And I think the whole idea that, you know, uh, a low level employee can't interview someone that has behaved badly because mm-hmm. he wouldn't take them seriously. So I fed them all the mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it bothers me. I still look at the guy online. He's still, he's probably still, you know, ripping other companies off. Wow. Yeah. That is hard to watch. Um, as, as you alluded earlier and in our last conversation, you're voraciously curious and maybe it's innate, maybe it's cultivated or self-cultivated, maybe it's both. How do you help cultivate curiosity in others? Oh, um, (laughs) I have friends who tell me that, you know, I actually had a friend who told me this morning I was cynical and I'm like, I'm not (laughs) cynical. And I had a boss who told me I was cynical and I'm like, I am skeptical when things don't line up. It makes me question. Right. I just, um, I don't take things at face value. Like I recently posted some pictures of me at a casino because I had two gigs at two different casinos and it looks like I'm playing a slot machine. And I posted, don't believe what you see on social media. Now, so 
someone might say, oh, she actually gambles. Well, if you'd read my other stuff, you would know that that is not true and that I was just kind of like poking the bear. Um, when it doesn't make sense, and I this goes to embezzlement, when that 30 or $40,000 a year employee shows up in a brand new Tesla or Range Rover, doesn't make sense. It makes me want to dig. Like, right. I want to understand. And this goes to money in in the world, I guess, I'm going to say specifically in the United States, we don't like to talk about it. And I was just saying this recently at a training I gave, I had, I was working on a case, that case for three years, and I took time off to go on sabbatical with my husband. And we were going to be gone four months to Australia. And the lawyer asked me, how do you afford that? Did you have a rich relative die and leave you money? <laughs> now, none First of her of business. all, that's rude. <laughs> yeah, none of her business. And um, I just, and plus I was making a lot less money than her. So I was like, it was just, um, but then at the same time, I give her credit because she did actually ask me, where's the other attorney on the case right. either had no interest or was just like, it's none of my business. Good so point. I kind of give her credit for it. But, um, and you know, my kids went to a private school. And, you know, I pull up in my little Honda Civic hybrid and, you know, they go, oh, look at that car. And I was like, that car's probably leased. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, so things have to make sense to me because I mm -hmm. grew up in a family that looked very successful and my dad lost everything mm -hmm. and um, no one knew it. Right, right. No, no, you're, I, I like the way that you phrase that when it doesn't make sense, you have to dig. And I think that that's, that is the DNA of someone who's drawn to our profession. Um, it can be nurtured as, as we discussed in the last episode together. Uh, it, it can definitely be nurtured, but if you don't have the relentlessness of I, I have to either it has to ultimately make sense or we, I have to get the answer as to why it doesn't make sense, then someone can only push you so far to keep asking. Um, you just reminded me of um, something recreational slash uh, that became national news for me to me. Um, there was this yoga studio in New York and San Francisco called Yoga to the People, and it was donation based cash only multiple studios in the two most expensive cities in America. And I would go to the studios in uh, several of the studios in New York. And I immediately, I, you know, I was the beneficiary of the donation based yoga because I could give whatever I wanted. But I, as the, the investigator in me thought uh, that that tissue box that they have, they hold out at the end for the donations. How the heck are they accounting for this? And how on earth are they affording this studio in the East Village of New York City? Lo and behold, uh, the three co-founders um, have all been arrested for uh, security, not securities, fraud, wire fraud and uh, other charges. Oh my um, gosh. And they actually took the, in the reporting about this, this was in the New York Times, the reporting about this, they talk about how the teachers were forced to go count the cash at the owner's apartment in New York. So I'm not saying I'm sort of profit here, financial profit, but I had that exact reaction. This doesn't make sense. And I like how you distill that down. And then, then we have to kind of pursue what would 
cause this to make sense or how can we reconcile all these parts? Um, sorry, that was a long-winded story, but I just, I just got really excited. I'm fascinated. About that. Yeah. I'll send you the story afterward. Um, I know we need to wrap up in a few minutes um, in the spirit of the um, origin of this podcast, great women in fraud. I talked to some great women in fraud who have some questions for you and I'd like to pose them to you. Oh dear. Um, what are ethical issues that you have come across in your work, whether with clients uh, or the methods that you may have needed to pursue in your work? Oh, I can't think of any like specific examples right off the top, but um, even though there's a lot of gray in the world, I know where my line is. I was asked to do something relatively recently. And the minute the person asked me to do it, they knew that I would never do it. So before I could even say, I won't do it, they said, I shouldn't have even asked you that. Mm. I think if you give sort of a, a sense of um, a strong ethical compass, a lot of people won't ask you to do stuff that they might ask other people to do. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of call it the FU fund, the walkaway fund. Mm, that's right. Yeah. So I, I think, um, <laughs> what did we used to call it? Uh, the bubble. I feel that I have a bubble. People find people who don't know me um, can find me off-putting because <laughs> I'm so direct. Um, so it causes a bubble. And so I think less people would ask me than maybe more people. Ah, Does I like that. Yeah. I'd be curious how you convey that, that it, when it's not um, overt and verbal. Um, how do you convey to people through your reputation, through your just the record of your work? How do people pick up on that, do you think? I think this is like, you know, um, I think I'm a little standoffish initially to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it's just maybe because I'm <laughs> assessing them or, um, you know, I've had experiences in my life where I need to protect myself. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I can, I cannot be very open sometimes. Maybe it comes back to that skepticism we were talking about, which can be misinterpreted as cynicism incorrectly. Um, that's, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, another great woman in fraud wanted to know, what do you see as the early indicators of pink collar crime and how are they different from white collar crime in terms of the, the early signs that, that, or, you know, or, or features of pink collar crime that are different from white collar? It's just a small amount in their mind. It's just a small amount And that the early indicator, I mean, I joke that, you know, instead of using suave shampoo, they upgrade to a Veda shampoo or something like that. <laughs> That's a big upgrade. <laughs> it's, it, it's just, it's incremental. And I would also say that it's less planned than most white collar crimes. I don't want to say it just happens, but it can just happen. And um, it's a really slippery slope. And I think white collar is much more calculated. 
how do those look different? So the incremental changes and the the less planned nature of it, how does that manifest? What does that look like? Um, I think the people are much less likely to see themselves as a bad person. Now, in white collar crime, I think that can happen with like the Bernie Madoffs of the world. But um, uh, I just read a story in LinkedIn this morning, a guy who did a Ponzi scheme committed um, uh, suicide. And that's a red collar crime. Um, What people what I want people to understand is pink collar crime is committed by regular sort of people. White collar crime, I'm going to say, is generally committed by people that a lot of people don't have interactions with. But we all have interactions with the soccer club manager or the water district or the dentist office. A lot of people don't think they're going to have an interaction with someone who's going to rip them off on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. That will make us all skeptical now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> another question is um, how important, this is kind of a professional development um, question from someone who, who's in this field. How important do you regard the CFE accreditation? And is that is that necessary for someone to, especially a woman, to make a career in and um, the, the fraud identification and um, uh, investigation field? So um, it changed my career trajectory. Um, people have heard me say that I have a complicated relationship with the ACFE. I recommend, I just did a um, state association of licensed investigators and they think it's too expensive. I will tell most people right off the bat, you're gonna double your rate. Um, Mm. No problem with the CFE designation. Um, It, uh, you're an expert. Um, And the community is very, very welcoming. I just think it differentiates you from quote, a regular licensed private investigator. Mm -hmm. And the material is so good. Like it's, I mean, to take the test, I think the material is so interesting. Why not? But I'm one of those cheesy lifelong learners. Like if I could go back to school and get my PhD, I would. Doesn't make any sense. I actually had someone (laughs) diss me on a review saying, well, maybe she's older than she looks, but why can't she? My husband was in academia. There's no, there would be no logical financial benefit to me to get a PhD. But if I could do it, I would. And actually, technology makes it at least more possible now. Right, right. Well, that's a resounding endorsement, um, and this this woman will be, will be very uh, rewarded to hear that uh, that guidance. Um, final question, because you and I talked about this uh, in my interview. What's the last thing you Googled? Oh, the last thing I Googled. Um, oh, you know what? Oh, this is so sad. Um, so Avi Klein, who I don't know, um, but via, via, um, LinkedIn, he's an investigator. He posted, um, 
a, a post about this woman, Kelsey Kinsley, who was an investigator and who died unexpectedly over the weekend. And he said she was the best pretexter and subpoena. So I Googled her biography on IMDb and she started as a traffic reporter. She hosted numerous TV. So I was fascinated because I didn't know her. And he said a lot of people didn't know her, but she actually worked because, yeah. So I Googled her oh, and I'm just, okay. wow. I wish I would have known her. So that's what the last thing I Googled. Okay. Well, it's certainly industry topical. It's very sad news. Um, I'm going to then make that the penul penultimate question and ask you, what are you reading right now? Oh, um, like money copy book. Money Men. Okay. It's Say the more. story of Wirecard by Dan McCrum. Oh, I yes. Have him on Fraudish. Um, I'm reading that. And then I'm also reading actually Unfiction. And I have, I don't think I've read this author before. Um, Dan De Silva. Um, hmm. And hmm. it's about a retired spy and art and i picked it up at the library the other day and i'm really enjoying it so i'm like i might have a new author to read dan de silva daniel wow. de silva. I, um, yeah i like the the uh, pairing of fiction and nonfiction concurrently i'm a big fan of that approach oh yeah you got to you need it you need it yeah. um well kelly this has been a joy as expected the time flew by and this was very easy to talk to you um anything else that I didn't ask that you would love to talk about before we go. I am fascinated with your work in the fact that you get to do sort of, and it, the word is not a good word these days, I don't think, dossiers. On, <laughs> it used to be a decent word. It, it sounds sophisticated, but unfortunately it's become stigmatized. But yeah, report would be more neutral and accurate. Uh, a report, a portrait of, of companies and people, but yeah, keep, keep going. We don't have to talk about me, but I would just love to hear any other thoughts you have. Well, just to like, you know, to dig into someone like that, I actually um, was asked just recently if I had done an investigation and I said, I, it would only been open source intelligence. And um, the person said anything else. And I said, like surveillance, I miss doing surveillance i oh, loved wow. physical surveillance like <laughs> as long as it was moving i mean i didn't like sitting you know on a house for eight hours but um when i was a custom special agent i loved surveillance like and i think it tells you so much but then again this is like old school you could follow someone or you could just you know look at their phones and see where they've been <laughs> i think it's so much harder but it the same time so much easier to be a crook today wow on that note um <laughs> well i think instead of pursuing that phd you should uh, devote that brain power to writing your book my next book yeah your, maybe. your, your memoir your autobiography i have a new idea for another podcast too with a colleague of mine um that will be I think it will be more of a series and I'm kind of really excited to do it, but I have to wait for a few things to settle down before we do it. Um, and let's just say everyone has had a less than stellar experience with the legal system and we'll leave it at that. Wow. I'm not surprised. Well, thank you for having me as your guest host and I'm always available to assist and I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Kelly.
Jen, this was a pleasure for me. Like you helped me out so much. I'm so excited that we've become connected. I look forward to meeting you in person and you will definitely be back as a guest host. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you.